Our guest today is poet Catherine Wagner. Catherine was born in Burma and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And she's the author of two books of poetry, Macular Hole and Miss America, both published by Fence Books. She's also completed a number of chapbooks, including Hotel Faust and Exercises. Her poems, reviews, and essays appear regularly in magazines on both sides of the Atlantic. Her recent publications include poems in Shearsman, American Letters and Commentary, Black Clock and the Hat, she holds a PhD in English from the University of Iowa and MFA from the University, excuse me, English PhD in English from the University of Utah and MFA from the University of Iowa and teaches courses in creative writing and poetics at Miami University of Ohio. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I was hoping that we um, could get right into things by having you read a few of your poems. Um, I picked out a few from your first book titled Miss America from the sections called Magazine Poems. Sure. Okay. This one's called A Poem for Harper's Bazaar. Black caw, gimme an awe. I wore your underclothes. Walked to the river and soaked my toe down to the undergrow. Nail gone, go callous, bone pull raw. You've been eating too much too fast, you fat and gassy and tepid. You've been silver and gold, you match, you plaid metal up to the neck bridge. And I, I say, been belted round with Virginia creeper, and I've been choked down marrow out and fed tinfoil till bloated. We all sat around and watched TV that evening. You had a cigarette, the smoke was your halo. Little storm in the skin, rushes out, bright house. If I had a girl who would speak through her gun, if I had a print of a coup or a caw, a pale plaid print on a jubbly thigh, a mayonnaise face, and a switch of rouge. La Looney Boyette. Doot, 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 doot. La Looney. Should I read another one? Yeah, oh, go, okay. go ahead. The, this little one's hat. Okay. Yeah. A poem for good housekeeping after Wittgenstein. This is um, sort of plugging in or different words into a sentence that I really liked that I found in Wittgenstein. Of course, that is a bus such as I have often seen on Third Avenue. From inside, one transports oneself with it until one is there. Of course, that is a book such as I have often seen on the dining room table. One reserves marks with it until they mean or not. One has various reasons. Of course, that is a mother such as I have often seen in my childhood. One mothers oneself with it until its end of the equation. Of course, that is a boyfriend such as I have often seen sleeping. One reassures oneself with it until one leaves for work. A poem for poets and writers. I always want to begin with if, usually reject it. Plunge in solid, I reverse myself. If because what I say is mutable. If can't be rubbed out, really. March, 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 march. And in the absence, there is a form to be filled out, a forum or group work. You order. I run and get the food. You give me some money. Some could not read this. It would be like reading tentacles, your eyes, which has meaning. I hate not understanding. 
I like understanding so much I wanted to happen over and over. Thank you. That was poet Catherine Wagner reading a few of her magazine poems from her first book titled Miss America. Um, I really enjoyed that particular poem cycle. I probably read your book about a year ago, and it was really, it was really refreshing to me because uh, I feel like in the discourse of people who study poetry and you know among poets themselves, periodicals, some of those periodicals are sort of regarded as it's almost like it's a taboo. Um, and you've got all these writers who don't want to talk about reading magazines because they're regarded as, uh, in, in some forms, a, a lesser type of literature. Um, I mean, how do you, as a, as a writer, interact with these periodicals? Yeah, well, different ways for the different magazines. There were a whole range of them in there. You know, there was sort of POMO cultural criticism mm-hmm. like social text or there's poets and writers which is a slightly cheesy mm-hmm. um, magazine for publishing for you know for, if, for people who want to get published and yeah. Uh, yeah and then there's some more pop poppy kind of magazines and Harper's is one of them yeah I've, I mean I, I am crazy about magazines I really like particularly fashion magazines yeah I, that's I think that's fabulous I mean you don't find most poets gathered <laughs> After reading, talking about Vogue or Elle. But, well, um. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I bet they would if you gave them a chance. But. Yeah, probably. probably. Yeah. yeah, but some people definitely are snobby about it. And one of the things I was uh, interested in with this project was thinking about audience. You know, that, I mean, I don't, I really, I really wanted to think about my, what it would be like if I wrote a poem that would appear in that particular magazine and what I would want to say to the, to that audience. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really, um, and it wasn't that I, you know, had anything really important that I wanted to say to them or that I wanted to, in, I didn't, I didn't want to mess up the dynamic of the magazine's interaction with its readers, but I just wanted to imagine myself talking to that group. Just think, all right, here's me talking to that group. What am I going to say? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, what do you think is the role of the periodical in our, in our culture today? Do you, th- do you think it's something that should have more importance, less importance? Huh, well, I think it's pretty important if you, especially if you count the internet, you know, mm-hmm. there's just so, it's kind of exploded. Everybody looks at them all the time, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think the role of the periodical, it's, it's huge. It, yeah. it's, it's a community maker, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So you said your favorites are the fashion magazines. Yeah, well, I mean, I like literary magazines. I like a lot of literary magazines, but yeah, I, that's my sort of... Um, fetish if I'm feeling like going home having some spaghetti and reading something if I'm not feeling so good yeah Yeah, I love fashion magazines and I also have a really secret fetish for O magazine which you mustn't tell anybody (laughs) now everyone knows (laughs) but um yeah I I particularly liked actually the poems you wrote about uh the more female oriented publications like mm-hmm. the one for entertainment weekly which you read and or the one for good housekeeping which you read and the one uh-huh. for entertainment weekly um which i really loved but um do you feel like the market for periodicals is one that is biased by gender because it seems like the majority of the publications that you see in the supermarket you know in the grocery store are for women yeah, that's true. That's, yeah, I wonder whether, I don't know. Um, I mean, there are certainly lots of magazines that are aimed at men, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there are some some men that I've known have actually really liked fashion magazines 
um, and I know when they're in the house, my boyfriends and my ex-husband always used to read them. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is an interest there, but there's a taboo about actually buying them. Hmm. You know, and it's possible that they serve a different purpose for at least some men as a kind of soft porn. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they're they're they might be basically that for women too. Yeah, yeah, so. I think so. <laughs> I think so. But um, a lot of your poetry in both of your books, I noticed, is rooted. Um, in images of the body and in particular in images of a sort of flawed female body and um, I'm wondering where that like where where is that coming from does does that relate to the periodicals at all oh sure I mean I think that that's you know what it's it's really hard not to be sort of obsessive about the body Mm -hmm. in in our culture and uh, I when I was a kid I had a lot of there were a lot of things about my body that made me really uh, aware of it Hmm. and it was very it was a very publicly flawed body I had uh, an allergy to milk that I didn't find out about till I was about 20 and it made me fart like a banshee (laughs) it was just disgusting and it was you know no I know I know I know someone who's had the same (laughs) experience yeah Yeah. and uh and so I thought god what is wrong with me All, all the time and I also wore orthopedic shoes for a time and I had glasses really young and um, there were all these things that made me feel like, oh, you know, my body, this is, a, this is just torture being alive. Yeah. Um, not, you know, really minor things. Yeah. But, but perfect, to, yeah, perfect breeding ground yeah. for the angst you need to, yeah. to write poems, right? But also I've always found the, uh, I, I never personally found the um, sort of material aspects of the body that are, ta- you know, I guess technically taboo. I'd never found them particularly disgusting. Hmm. Um, yeah, I can sense that. Body can, fluids and all that stuff. I, I find I still really like that stuff. Yeah, I can sense yeah. that in a lot of your work because it's something that just comes out without, you know, there's no preface. There's no, you know, there's no explanation required. Yeah. It's just something that happens. Yeah. And I think that you address that pretty, pretty naturally and pretty accurately. Yeah, well, I think it's up right up at the surface because of always thinking about it when I was a kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop um, grappling with the all these images of the body and you know, the way that you present these public, these public magazines, these uh, images from the media. And uh, I, I was just wondering if that was a a connection that you made, you wanted to make explicit or it was intentional or whether it was just something that happened. You mean when I mentioned people like Gwyneth Paltrow or? Um... No, just like the way that you deal with the flawed body, was that something oh. that was meant to connect to um, public image, the way that you present it through magazines. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I suppose it. I suppose in some ways it does. It 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 specifically plays a role um, in the magazine poems because there are these places. And I know there's this one place where I tell this little anecdote about um, you know in being in New York and uh, telling a friend that I'd been you know, writing a postcard to my friend mm-hmm. and saying that I'd been you know. Um, spotted on the street for to be a pretty plus model for Sears catalog yeah I remember that yeah. one and uh that was actually uh, and my friend believed me that was a true anecdote and I was really upset that my friend believed me <laughs> because pretty plus means plump right yeah so um there were and I, I was so I was thinking about um issues of self-consciousness mm-hmm. and and presentation but um I, it's a long time since I've written those poems and I uh I feel like I don't think in the same way as I did when I wrote those poems. I think I was much more, I was, you know, 
fairly young woman writing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's, you know, I wonder if you're identifying with the poems because you're... Maybe, the, yeah, yeah, maybe I'm at that place. I wonder, but um, I mean, it's not that I don't feel self-conscious anymore, but I, I, I feel so much more comfortable and confident about, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that it's possible as a poet to write poetry that is not self-conscious? I hope not, because I think that that poems are only interesting when they're sort of in conversation with themselves as they go along, Mm -hmm. you know, doing this active response thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, for me, I feel like I I started to really be involved in my own writing when I started to... um, when I started to realize that it that it was something that I could respond to on the page immediately, mm-hmm. here's something that I've been I've I write something I'm presented with it and then I write something directly back at that just push 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 yeah against against itself all the time yeah that's something I've been thinking about a lot about lately too whether how you how you interact with your writing and whether that's something that you should do continuously or can do continuously or whether it's something that you can step back from a little bit but um. You teach courses, right, on creative yeah. writing. Is yeah. that something that is that something that ever comes up in your in your classes in your coursework workshops? Yeah, sure. I I um I I like thinking about process mm-hmm. a lot with my students and I give them assignments that relate to I give them, you know, I make them do things like hypnotize themselves and do different things to try to get That's their self-editors off their backs and I have this kind of um I don't know, cheesy, mystical streak that um, I, I actually really enjoy and um, and want to take on in my poems and to try to think think about being completely honest and, and in a, and um, I have some tendencies that way. My brain just goes that way into mystical experience a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, lately I'm really curious about just pushing that as far as it will go but maintaining the self-consciousness and then and the no shit will be taken kind mm-hmm. of thing so that see if I can push that mysticism out as far as it'll go and also just puncture it every step of the way hmm. that's great yeah I'll be looking forward to seeing that in your new work but um, we're going to take a short break right now uh, you're listening to Living Writers Show and we'll be right back Lucifer told me that I should go easy That I should lay back and let slack water take me I said leave me Lucy, your stories are juicy For some dried out mind, but that mind is not mine I used to be uprooted, but now I am fruited With free flowing nectar that's suiting me better So Lucifer left me listening to Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm talking with poet Catherine Wagner about her recent her recent publications. Um, before the talk, the break, we were talking a lot about um, self consciousness, um, 
flawed self-image and how that surfaces in your poetry. And I think that this is an idea that really extends into your second book, but it, it, it alters itself in another way because you're tackling a very different subject matter. Mm -hmm. And um, I was hoping that you would read a portion from your second book, a poem titled Perfect Love. Yeah. My son's actually in the studio, um, <laughs> or he's in the other studio, so he's going to... Will he hear me read this? I, yeah, you okay. will hear it. Okay. Unless you don't want him <sighs> Therapy to. Therapy ahead. Um, perfect love. Today Ambrose rolled over for the first time since in the pub with Damaris and Adam. Twice today. Also, he objected when I tried to take away my water bottle. And I will love my fellow people with a perfect love. Working for another, until one is more than exhausted, is not the same as having perfect love for him. I hate the baby. Stop crying. I hate you and put you down. I hate you coming over my life like a bag. Inside the bag, a garden bigger than the inside of my eye, high protective walls, invisibles twitching and uncovering themselves. I made that up so no one will take the baby away. Anyway, sometimes thus, and sometimes choked down in the hard, tight bag. The imprisoner is time, or my sense of it. A great suction fattens on my tray-rich hours. My hours are not mine and more. So I write a moralizing poem, so a poem to feel better, do what I want to it, go back and prune it, and hope that E in it wangs harder inside the smaller cell. My child can wang unpruned. No, I'm espaliering him. Can't help that. Everyone was born inside a bag and came out here to a bag of atmosphere and satellites where we'll live inside cool greenhouse plastic when the world is too hot. Inside a bag, my son will go to live. He can look down here to the fried up water and say, fuck you for driving so much and fuck you for crying and look at the inside of our bag. It's all vines. He can have vines because I can't drink wine while I'm breastfeeding. Tyrant. Asleep and saying, whoo, fantastic waxen kicking figurine, like a kick in the head, little fat bag, a good drug I see more of the him in. Thank you so much. That was Catherine Wagner reading a poem she wrote titled Perfect Love. Well, I, much of that poem, despite the title, I mean, is talking about a love that's trying, a love that is difficult, and a love that is essentially, it, it seems imperfect I mean is that what you, is that what you were getting at when you were writing it when you were titling it um I guess so it was I I think it was to do with my you know despite despite the level of, of preparation I should have had maybe I I thought that that mothering would be much easier and that the and that the kind of enormous love would come mm -hmm. really fast and um it definitely didn't it was really difficult in the making for me and um, basically because I was so resentful of the amount of time that yeah. it took. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about, there's one line, I, I, I can't remember it specifically, but you say you want to give this perfect love to others. Yeah. And were you referring to specifically motherly love or to 
romantic um, love or just love in general. Yeah, that uh, love for everyone. That you know, there mm-hmm. should be this kind of. Um, I I will love my perfect people, my my fellow people with a perfect love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a, a I don't know an effort a, a an ideal to mm-hmm. just be be able to love everybody and then and and to feel and I think the thing that was really horrible to me was to feel that not only did I not love all my fellow people with a perfect love but I didn't even love my own son with a perfect love so mm-hmm. like the you know the one place that I should be completely able to sacrifice myself and give myself over I was having a huge struggle with it mm-hmm. I really I think the poem achieves um, communicating that idea very well also um, so much of your second book Macular Hole seems to be about becoming a mother and then being a mother and um, I mean you had your son a few years ago which your book makes it sound like it's a you know beautiful yet terrifying experience. Um, Did you, did you approach, did you approach the period of time when you knew you were going to become a mother as material? Well, it just was anyway. I mean, Mm -hmm. some of the poems in here were written before I was pregnant and they, they just seemed to fit in with the whole um, event Mm -hmm. really well. It was a long, it was a while in coming and a Mm -hmm. while desired. And uh, it's a, it is a huge, I'm actually editing a a book of motherhood poems right now by a whole bunch of amazing poets, mostly sort of experimental, innovative women poets. Great. And um, I, I think it's going to be, I'm delighted with it. I was worried about it at first. It, my, I, I'm editing it with a, with a friend, Rebecca Wolf, and it was her idea. And I thought, this is a cheese ball idea. I can't do this. And then as I've looked, as I've gone on, I've realized that the, my worry is exactly why the anthology needs to come out because it's so emphatically not a hallmarky affair. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing your poetry, does your material tend to just be what what surrounds you, or do you tend to move outside of yourself and seek things out? Hmm. hmm. It sounded like <laughs> when you were talking about motherhood, it was just there. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't tend to seek things out. I tend to you know lie down and see what happens mm-hmm. and there are sort of these little word groups that form in my head and then I write them down it started happening again recently and I'm so relieved because it wasn't happening for a long time after he was born mm-hmm. um but the hmm I I I wouldn't mind if I went more external but mm-hmm. I feel like the external is 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 there anyway it's always around there's always experience that comes in and um I feel like there's that I'm always thinking about political things and um, and also about economics and those things just sort of make their way in this macular hole ended up being a lot about economics because I was trying to think about exchange um, on all sorts of levels mm-hmm. exchange as language that comes in and comes out of you and um, the sperm comes in the baby comes out mm-hmm. you know these weird crazy energy exchanges that happen all the time that transform that and the body as a pass as as the sort of I th- one of the things I call it in the book is a, a mailbox, but the um, you know what comes out at the other end is completely different mm-hmm. from what goes in. Yeah. Um, and I wondered whether there was any way to think about the that the process of language going in and coming out and baby, you know, non-baby going in and baby coming out <laughs> as um as somehow 
more than economical, more than economics, bigger than exchange. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, and it isn't both. But it was something that really was bothering me at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can see those, um, you know, those images moving throughout the work. Um, I guess you're you're writing or you're editing this motherhood compilation, so it's obvious that motherhood is not only something that was just there for you, but something you feel compelled to write about. But um, I guess what I'm curious about is whether it's something that you feel obligated to write about. Oh, I see. I don't think so, except that it's such a huge thing to deal with when it comes into your life that there's, you know, it just completely takes over. So Mm -hmm. there's almost no way not to write about it because there's very little else going on for a a short time. Mm -hmm. We've been talking so much about um, the female image, what it means to be a woman and a mother Mm -hmm. and... um, there are there are all these different roles that women in our society can be placed into in relation correspondence to their gender but i'm curious as to what you think about the role of the female poet as someone who's writing work that is that has a distinctly feminine voice to it mm-hmm. yeah i think this is a really difficult and interesting question is mm-hmm. there something you know specifically yeah are fem- we essentially feminine are about, we obligated to write about certain issues because we are female yeah yeah well i hope to god not yeah I mean, that would be it, it it would be a real shame if if we were i mean nobody's i don't but in a way i don't know mm. because it seems like motherhood is an experience that you know not only all people don't share in but not not even all women share in right so do you think that that's something that you know, not not every woman who is a mother must write about, but some people should probably write about. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose so. I mean, yeah. it's it's good to have representation, you mm-hmm. know. And that's one of the things that's that I I hope that the anthology is actually called not for mothers only because it's um we don't want it to be. Yeah. It probably will be read mostly by mothers, but we think it's an important subject to be out there in the world. You know, there are lots of this is really a standard thing to say about it. What I'm about to say, but you know, there are tons of poems about war. And there are mm-hmm. tons of poems about, you know, baseball, actually. And um, and it would be nice if the mother poems could could be just as forefronted, since it's such a major part of everyone's life, mm-hmm. yeah, this, this process. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I hate to make any sort of essentialist claims about what women have to write about. Or It, it seems to yeah. me that if you go making that sort of claim, then you need to make the same claim for every every group. Yeah, you know, every sort female... Of like, Every Latina, every, what you know, whatever, every Russian Jew, everybody has to, um, has to speak about their own experience. And I don't think that it's, uh, and I think that, you know, people do speak from their position. They can't help it. But the content of what they write is completely, um, it it could go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we're required to write about our own experience. Although I think people do feel compelled to do it when they feel like there that isn't being represented out there in the world mm-hmm. you know? and I think that's a good it's a good reason to yeah I, I, I do think it's a very it's a complicated question it's one that you know obviously has no concrete answer yeah. for us but it's it's been something that I think has been pretty present um, it's a question about intention isn't it really I mean, yeah should you uh, I guess you know thinking about writing political poems for example which seems to be a great topic among my generation mm-hmm. um, and for obvious reasons. I, it just seems like a big, you know, since 9-11 anyway, people have been really concerned. Mm-hmm. So, I, uh, and, you know, do we want to just start writing poems that have a 
sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for a teaching purpose a, mm-hmm. a particular direction um, and you know or do we want to just say let the poem come to me and see what it says you know yeah um, I'm really interested in didactic poems and the in the sort of Horatian odes and um, any particular any particular examples in mind well for our listeners well there's a terrific poem that's um, translated by Dryden and I won't be able to remember the the number but uh this is it's just one of the uh, Dryden translated a bunch of them um and they're really great because of the sound of them they're really like it sounds like a bank vault closing at the end mm. of a real line like boom, boom, yeah. boom. <laughs> um but uh that they're the thing that's so great about Horace is that he writes these really really kind of um, casual sounding but just perfectly formed instructional poems Mm -hmm. and I'm really interested in this because not very many people do this anymore Kenneth Koch did some of it Ashbery sort of pretended to do some of it but it was a joke Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that I'm curious about whether there's a way to um, evade evade intention that would sort of corrupt or corrupt is the wrong word but Overdirect the poem so that you would be limiting what you would be saying. Mm-hmm. And it was the problem with with expressing your intention to yourself at the beginning of writing a poem. You know, you limit what you're gonna, what you might discover. You don't want to limit discovery. But at the same time, I think that it would be interesting to bring back into poetry uh, um, among experimental avant-garde, etc., which mm-hmm. I feel like I'm sort of on the margins of. Yeah. Um, a sense of the didactic as a as a goal. So what I'm what I'm thinking about doing these days anyway is mm-hmm. trying to set out with the with an intention to be didactic hmm. but to evade other other kinds of intention so that when I so that I don't let my, you know, stupid conscious brain that doesn't necessarily say it, it doesn't think outside the box or whatever <laughs> um, that I don't let that contain the the piece too much but Mm -hmm. that but that I feel like I can just try to say some stuff try to say some real stuff that's true that um might be even useful yeah no it sounds like uh an incredibly uh interesting way to not only approach writing poetry but um something that sounds terribly difficult to me Mm -hmm. frankly but um we're going to take another short break and this time the music that we're going to hear um is actually composed composed by you uh the lyrics are by you it's a song it's called song scary several light uh stay tuned the living writer show we'll be right back another song this is um this tune this tune is uh i i think pretty annoying so i apologize (laughs) (laughs) it's called scary several light Once on Hayes Street, walking home in darkness, saw car lights pass, saw fence posts drive out and conquer, black stripes pulsing over house, over lawns and house. There was Wagner, fearful walking, saw the lights split by the driving ranks of shadows, marching in the several light, the scary several light. Here is Wagner swaying in the hammock, cover one big toe, up with the other toe, dying in the scary several light. 
Here comes baby, screaming down vagina, brain tissue coning, making of himself a painful squeeze toy in the scary several light, scary several light. Afternoon, the light diffuses, cramps around the hammock, cramps around my eyeballs, rolls hugely, tightly, hugely from the sky, the model blooming light. Here's a curio, there's only about uh, four more pages. <laughs> Here's a curio dangling in the hammock. No one sees my folded legs touch, no world surface but hammock. In the opportunity light, the several daytime light. I call on creatures living in the sky today. I adjure you, emerge and dive your wings and bodies. Prevail across the scary light, cavernous several light. Writing my poem all about the several light when the phone rings, alerting me to the car noises. Ignored them in the several light, sound adjusted light. Check the message, 6.38 p.m. It's my mother checking on the progress of the baby, wrestling in the dim water, the scary several light. That was uh, poet Kathy Wagner putting one of her poems into song. Uh, that was called Song, Scary, Several Light. So why did you feel compelled to put that into song? Well, that one, I, I, have, I do sort of hear poems in song sometimes and, or, or have tunes that I want to put words to. Sometimes mm-hmm. there will be tunes that I, that I know already, um, like, I don't know, the Doobie Brothers and seem to be a favorite for some reason. Mm-hmm. But I'll just start hearing words to songs. That one was had a really particular origin. It was, I used to, I was in, living in Boise, walking home late at night, right on a regular basis from a class I was teaching. And I would be scared, often. And um, I would sing that song to myself with the scary several light chorus, but with all kinds of different wor- words to it as a sort of... Um, I don't know, a uh, magic spell against bad things happening, you know, mm-hmm. like, and plus, you know, who's going to bother you? Some crazy woman walking down the street singing that song. You know? <laughs> <So>. True, <laughs> true. Um, I'm curious about uh, what you think about the difference between writing poems and writing lyrics. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, song lyrics are something that are it, something that are essentially different from poetry or the same thing? Oh, I think they're different because they can be flatter and they sometimes should be flatter and bl- a, have a little less texture to them or um, in order to, because the music does so much, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that it makes, I, I think my, my song poems have a little bit less going, n- not less going on exactly, but um, the images aren't necessarily as complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you have to sort of pull back a little bit when you're making songs. Some people don't. I mean, like Bob Dylan doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so. always, though, when I was thinking about this question, I, I feel like there's always the restriction of meter, which mm-hmm. is something that... Um, it, well, it depends. You could have a song that wasn't... I mean, you could have a more... You uh, you can. Yeah, it's definitely mm-hmm. possible, but I feel like, in general, terms yeah. of, in terms of lyrics... And certainly, um, with my, my songs are really like dopey simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even like you said, though... Though Bob Dylan can, you know, ramble on and on, there's still there's still a sense of meter. There's mm-hmm. there's still a sense of rhythm to sure. that. And, and lots um, of rhyme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in 2005, you published uh, 
a really interesting essay, I thought, for the uh, Academy of American Poets website, and it was called The Politics of Meter. Uh, it might be a little unconventional, but I was hoping that you would read us the epigraph from the essay. Yeah. What What is that exactly? Well, it's from Googleism, mm-hmm. Googleism.com, which is... Um, it, it doesn't seem to work anymore. It doesn't work as well when I've yeah, checked was, it out lately. I was snooping around there and I couldn't get it to work. So. Yeah, I don't understand what they've done with it. But it's it used to be great. You could just stick in any word or anybody's name and it would generate this sort of like most popular phrases that surround this particular thing. And, and you could define any word or tell what any person did, you know, by mm-hmm. um, with, with this thing. It was really it was really really fun um and crazy and uh did, you wanted me to read it right yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. okay so this uh this is i just typed in meter into googleism and loads of stuff came out and i just uh, edited it down a little bit meterism moving meter is running on psychic solution meter is enough meter is first to measure meter is running meter is a cost meter is a device that measures how well air moves meter is dead but will it be mourned Meter is music. Meter is an accelerometer. Meter is rigged. Meter is broken. Meter is now defined in terms of the speed of light. Meter is more robust than other designs. Meter is powered by the radiation going into your head. Meter is running on budget choices. Meter is steamed up. Meter is underground in a rectangular box with a plastic. Meter is small enough to fit in your shirt pocket. Meter is a shortened term for electropsychometer. Meter is built to take the abuse of everyday use and accidental mishaps. Meter is broken by Jessica. Meter is simple. Meter is easier than you think. Meter is held up to the patch. Meter is part of our premier portable range. Meter is a measuring device. Thanks. That was Catherine Wagner reading uh, the opening of her essay, The Politics of Meter. Um, Those are some really strange but interesting little tidbits uh, about what the internet tells us about meter, I guess. The one that... caught my eye in particular was I think meter is dead but will it be mourned uh-huh. and I felt like that was really the question that your essay was sort of toying with whether or not meter is dead who is mourning meter is anyone mourning meter and why and um, I was particularly interested and in, maybe this connects to the use of song in poetry um, I was interested in your discussion about the ability of poetic meter and rhythm to induce trance-like states oh yeah yeah i almost took that out really yeah yeah i and in fact they they cut it down at the um i said a little more about it and they cut it down really yeah i was so thrilled to see that in there i was like wow i've never i've never heard anything about this i did come across this um you know scientific study yeah (laughs) you never know about these studies but there was something about uh, that i found online about um about this what, how exactly how exactly is that working the induction of a trance-like state through meter well it's it's very similar the the idea anyway is very similar to the way you get into uh, trance when you when you hear certain kinds of drumming shamanic drumming you know mm-hmm. um, so you know, drum circles I'm sure they have them here in Ann Arbor <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a sort of um, I don't know not that kind of thing is not exactly to my taste mm-hmm. at least not the clothes that go with it. Um, but the drumming itself, I think, is really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. And I don't think that's some... It, it seems like uh, you're talking a lot about that, the avant-garde versus the traditional. And it seems like that was uh, such an avant-garde frame to put around the use of traditional meter. Hmm. Um, 
the fact that a traditional meter, which you know in contemporary circles is often looked down upon as um, oppressive or mm-hmm. um, too overly confined, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about it actually as a tool to perhaps open not necessarily even poetic doors, but just different ways of thinking about things. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that is that something that you're employing in your work pretty frequently, or? Well, it, uh, I do. I do write in rhythms a lot, um, and I like I like doing that. It seems to it puts me in a place where um, the the words start coming without my um, explicit pushing, and I I like it when that starts to happen. Then I can go back and change things around later. But um, it lets my brain start going in some way that is unplanned, which I really like. Um, and yeah, and I also I. I think a lot of the objections to meter have to do with a sense that um, there's this sort of upper class um, that it, that it, it it's a it's a rule it's kind of a ruling from on high sort of mm-hmm. thing. But um, I've I've read a lot of and studied a lot of ballads, folk ballads, and it seems to me that and that that tends to be the sort of rhythm that I work in more than pentameter you know mm-hmm. kinds of things I don't I, I'm interested in sonnets and things like that but I tend to work more in ballad forms and um, I, I I think it's really bogus to say that meter is you know this this thing that's enforced by um, sort of the I don't know poetry upper class poetry police mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I feel like it it should come back. It's, yeah. it's just lovely. And not only traditional meters, but new ones. And it is it is actually happening. I think when I wrote this essay, there were a few people doing it. And I, I have discovered a lot more that have been doing it. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Earlier, you um, identified yourself as someone who's sort of on the periphery of the avant-garde in poetry today. And I was wondering if you had any uh, had seen any influences that were using... Uh, more traditional meter or perhaps inventing new meters in general? Yeah, I don't know about inventing new meters. There are a couple of people uh, that that I know of that work in syllabics that I think are, are really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Devin Johnston does, and um, I'm just blanking on this person's name, but he's a fantastic writer. Aaron, um, Aaron somebody. Oh, well, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> How do you feel about... Mm-mm. But that's not, it's not new, but that's something that's going on. And mm-hmm. um, I was, I'm not a big fan of all of her poems, but Elena Klidiak Davis has some really mm-hmm. impressively forceful and emotionally charged things that she does with meter too. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the incorporation of um, more traditional meter in contemporary styles, contemporary formats, things like that? Is that something that you feel can be effective or should we just stick to you know, when we're using traditional meter, should we stick to the sonnets and the ballads? Oh, well, well do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Explore. I, I feel like um, there's a misconception that um, that on the side of the, uh, I don't know, avant-garde, experimental, whatever you want to call it, tradition, that, there, that, that meter was completely abandoned because people like Spicer and Duncan did use it. Ashbury was using it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I, I really think that the way that Duncan did it is, is useful to look at now because in things like the structure of rhyme, he worked in sometimes in prose and free verse and sometimes in, um, in really 
beautiful barometric patterns and just moved in and out according to what effect what what he was talking about what he wanted to convey mm-hmm. so i think that we should think about you know um if you want to think about the form is is a, a you know the creeley dictum mm-hmm. about form always being um what is it <laughs> help me out for, robert creeley uh, yeah yeah form is a something of content oh i don't know what's wrong with me but um that you know, if if we, I'm, I guess this comes around to what I was thinking about with intention, that mm-hmm. we could use form as a way to um, express ver- different things, depending on what we want to express. Sometimes mm-hmm. we might use meter, sometimes we might not. And, um, and, and something else I want to say really quick mm-hmm. is that there's this whole, of course, meter has been going on for a long time among the new formalists. And there's this whole other movement that I, I, I don't like. I think that that writing is very boring. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's all the time we have today. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was Catherine Wagner. Uh, thanks to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, and for our listeners for tuning in today. I'm Rachel Harkai, and you've been listening to The Living Writers Show. Show archives are available as podcasts on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store online and search for Living Writers, and stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Stopped in a clearing Ribbon of life It was nearing I saw the boy